Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Hello, welcome to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. Coming up this month, we find out what lies at the centre of our galaxy. We have news of the space rock that collided with the moon back in March. And how do spacecraft navigate their way through the solar system? We'll be finding out a bit later on. Plus, as always, we've got more answers to your space science questions. If you've got anything you'd like us to tackle, email astronomy at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. In just a moment, we'll be hearing from three astronomers who study the environments around black holes. But first, we have a question from Caspar Bardenhorst, who emailed us to ask why black holes often have jets of material coming out of them. To find out, I spoke to Tamela Maciel from the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge and started by asking her how we can see black holes at all if their gravitational fields are so incredibly strong that not even light can escape from them. Well, it's correct that black holes are not emitting any light. So if you were to have an isolated black hole by itself, it would be completely dark. But these black holes tend to accrete, attract a lot of material. And material that's falling into a black hole can gain a lot of speed. It can heat up. There's viscous turbulence going on. And things that are hot emit a lot of radiation. So what we're actually seeing is the radiation from the disk around the black hole before material falls into it. So you're saying this material around the black hole is actually getting red hot because of all this viscous turbulence in this disk. And in fact, I think black holes often even do x-rays, don't they? They are extremely bright in x-rays, so it is a, it's a thermal x-ray emission that we're seeing from these disks. They're so hot, they're emitting x-rays. So why do these accretion disks end up spewing out material in jets along their poles? Well, it's an active matter of debate at the moment. It's a very common question because it's easy to say that jets launch from a black hole. They're not emerging from within the event horizon of a black hole, so we're not violating any physics. It's something that we don't fully understand yet, but we think that accretion disks can have very large magnetic fields associated with them. There's a lot of charged plasma that's being spun around, and we think those magnetic fields can twist into sort of a helix pattern along the axis of rotation. So because this material is getting so hot, it's ionising, and that's turning it into this plasma And then you're saying those charged particles, because of their electrostatic charge, that's making them interact with this magnetic field that you've got there. Yes, exactly. So they're feeling a force from the magnetic fields and they would like to flow along this magnetic field. If the shape of the magnetic field, if the structure is a helix shape, um, issuing kind of along the, the axis of rotation, some of the charged particles will fall along the helix shape rather than falling into a black hole. And these form the jet that we see. And these jets can be incredibly bright, can't they? Extremely bright. Again, it's all ionised plasma that we're seeing. It's electrons, positrons, maybe some protons and magnetic fields. We get a radiation called synchrotron radiation, which um, we see mostly in the radio waves, which is why we use radio telescopes to look at these jets. And I think your PhD is actually about studying some of these very bright objects with accreting black holes at their cores producing these jets. Yep, exactly. So this is why I'm interested in it. I look at jets after they've already been launched far away from the black hole and their distances, their lengths are um, greater than the length of the galaxy itself. Jets that are a million light years long, so well beyond the galaxy itself, they've already launched and they're still moving outwards. 
and I'm looking at how that jet and the energy associated with that jet interacts with its environment. So these are really incredibly violent processes. I guess that's one of the most violent processes in the whole universe. Yeah, there's some of the largest scale processes, most powerful, the most violent, the most energetic. If you haven't seen a picture of one, do have a search online. They're really spectacular. Look for a radio galaxy. Just in terms of the sheer power and size, they're astonishing. Tam Seal. This month, I also spoke to Kirsten Goschalk from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, Western Australia. She'll be taking some more of your questions later in the programme. But first, she told me about a rather interesting analogy that she had recently heard to explain what drives these jets. This, when I heard this question, Dominic, I was really excited because I was just talking about this the other day to someone who I work with. And it, just the image that it formed in my mind when he was explaining it to me was amazing. So you have magnetic fields in these galaxies, obviously, and they're coming out at right angles to the accretion disk. And as the accretion disk spins around, those magnetic field lines actually get whipped up into a massive magnetic tornado, which then funnels the plasma from the middle of the accretion disk out as the jets. And so you've just got this galaxy-sized magnetic field tornado causing these jets. It's absolutely amazing. It really is quite remarkable how counterintuitive these jets are, isn't it? It is. You wouldn't expect something like this to exist, and especially because they are invisible when we look at these galaxies with optical telescopes, and then they only become visible when you use a radio telescope, that it just becomes amazing. You get this weird, indistinct blob when you look at it with a radio telescope, then becomes this stunning, massive, massive jets being shot out of this galaxy. Kirsten Goschalk who we'll be returning to later in the programme. Now, one of the most surprising things about astrophysical jets is that they don't just form in the very exotic environments around black holes, but also in many other places where gas finds itself spiralling inwards towards a central dense object, whether small or large. Tamla Masil again. Yeah, so we don't just see jets from these black holes, but also from newly forming stars called protostars, We see them in binary star systems, uh, gamma ray burst events. And I think this is key to gaining any sort of understanding of how the jets actually form. And then it's not the black hole or any kind of exotic physics associated with the black hole. It's actually something to do with an accretion disk around a very, very massive and compact object. And sometimes you get a case where a jet can form. So we're still looking into this, and this is part of my research as well. But I think looking at different scales and looking at jets on all different sizes is key to our understanding. So by studying these objects, you seem to be understanding some quite fundamental physical process that happened in an awful lot of astronomical objects. Yeah, exactly. And we're trying to approach this both looking at different objects through a telescope, also through computer simulations and just physical models, trying to figure out what's the fluid dynamics and some of the the magnetic fields and the energetic processes that's going on to create this jet. My thanks to Tamla Masil who's working on a PhD at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Now, our own galaxy, the Milky Way, has its own central black hole, which weighs in at around 4 million times the mass of the Sun, so you can think of it as our own local supermassive black hole. However, it doesn't appear to be surrounded by any gas that might be falling into it, and this makes it much fainter than the objects that Tamla studies. In fact, it produces so little light that it's almost completely invisible and shortly we'll be hearing from Reinhard Genzel, the man who discovered conclusive evidence for its existence as recently as the 1990s. However, beyond the black hole's immediate vicinity, the centre of the galaxy is a place that's rich in gas and newly forming stars. This month, new observations of this material were released by teams working with the Herschel Space Telescope. To find out what they discovered, I spoke to Professor Matt Griffin, from the University of Cardiff. The Herschel Space Observatory doesn't have the very fine angular resolution that you need in order to see what's going on in detail right in the middle. But what it can do is to map out the large-scale structure of gas and dust around the galactic center. And there's a region which is on the order of a few light years in diameter which is the central cavity in which there's some hot gas, and then around that there's a disk called a circumnuclear disk of colder gas. And then even further out from that, 
there is still quite a lot of gas and dust, which is in the form of a large ring of molecular clouds. These are clouds mainly of molecular hydrogen, but containing other material as well, in orbit around the galactic center. So it's quite a complex region, and it has you know, different kinds of activity going on in different zones. Now, obviously, we think of gas accreting onto black holes in active galactic nuclei, but our own galactic centre is quiescent. It's quiet in radio waves. Is it almost a bit of a surprise that this gas is there at all? Uh, well, Well, it is, actually. And what's even more surprising is the amount of stars that we see in the galactic centre, particularly young stars, and that shows that star formation is quite active right close in to the galactic centre. Of course, it's, it's natural enough that there will be a supply of the raw material from which stars are made, that's clouds of hydrogen gas, because the center of the galaxy is quite dense. But very close into the galactic center, the material is moving very quickly, and it's not natural for a cloud of gas to form a clump and then the clump to contract and form a star before it might get uh, disrupted by the tidal effects of the gravity field. However, the overall rate of star formation going on in the, you know, the central region of the galaxy as a whole, that would be you know, a region much larger than the, the very inner core. It would be a, a few hundred light years from the galactic center. The amount of material in there is extremely dense, and it actually accounts for something on the order of 10% of the total star formation activity in the galaxy, even though it's only a very tiny fraction of the volume of the galaxy. So the uh, region around the galactic center is actually the most actively star-forming part of the galaxy itself. That's why it's quite interesting to study it. And I guess that's why in images of galaxies the cores look so incredibly bright because you've got all those young stars around that central black hole. Yes, one often finds that the activity of a galactic nucleus is also associated with strong star formation and that often poses the difficulty of trying to find out what fraction of the emission that we see is attributable to star formation and what fraction is attributable to the accretion going on in the black hole and it can be quite difficult to tell those apart because the observational signatures are not very different and when we look at a distant galaxy then they're all mixed up we can't resolve them spatially. Looking at our own galactic center, of course, our instruments have much better angular resolution and we're able to get a somewhat more detailed picture. As you said, though, the black hole at the center of the Milky Way is not particularly active, at least at the moment, although it does have presumably episodes where a star or a clump of gas falls in, but those are quite um, infrequent, at least on human timescales. So why is the Herschel Space Telescope so well suited to observing this part of the galaxy? Uh, Well, for two reasons. Firstly, it has the angular resolution to resolve the central cavity, which has a size of about one parsec, that's a a few light years, from the ring of material that surrounds it. So previous infrared telescopes haven't been able to do that. And it also observes at the wavelengths where gas in molecular form tends to emit. So we have quite a lot of useful diagnostics. So we can see directly the interstellar material, and we can see it over a very broad wavelength range so that we can look at the signatures of the atoms and molecules in space. And by looking at those spectral signatures, we can infer properties, the basic physical properties of the gas, such as the temperature and the density. And we can also determine characteristics of its motion so we can tell whether it's moving towards us or moving away from us. And because we're we're sitting in the middle of the galactic plane in the solar system, and in order to see the galactic center, we have to look right through it. So there's a huge amount of obscuring material between us and the galactic center. And at the long wavelengths at which Herschel observes that are a few hundred times longer than the wavelength of visible light, the obscuration is not nearly as high as it is at shorter wavelengths, so we can see through all of the murk right into the heart of the galaxy. And the surprising result when it comes to the material that's inside the cavity that's within on the order of a light year or a couple of light years of the galactic center is that it's at a much higher temperature than similar material in the interstellar medium elsewhere in the galaxy, even in actively star-forming regions. In fact, the observations can only be accounted for by invoking some 
regions where the gas temperature is going to be several hundred or up to a thousand degrees centigrade. So it's very hot indeed compared to normal conditions. And the question is, how does it get that hot? What particular processes are occurring in the region of the galactic centre that result in that extreme heating? So what are the processes likely to be that's triggering this heating? Well, there are two basic processes that can result in extreme heating of gas in a region like the galactic center. One would be a very strong X-ray emission from uh, material accreting onto the black hole. And we know this happens quite a lot in other galaxies, galaxies that are more active than the Milky Way as far as the central engine is concerned. When material falls onto a black hole, it speeds up and a lot of its gravitational energy is converted into heat and it emits copious X-rays. And those X-rays then heat up the surrounding gas. So that's one way of achieving such a high temperature. But in this study, it turns out that that's not the most plausible explanation. And in fact, that would be a surprise because as far as we know, the, the black hole at the center of the Milky Way is not particularly active at the moment. So there isn't a phenomenal amount of accretion going on. So the supply of those X-rays would be difficult to explain. But there are other mechanisms associated with star formation in the vicinity. For instance, there is ultraviolet radiation, which is produced in copious amounts by hot young stars. And because the region is very turbulent, and this would be my my own guess, although only a bit of a guess, um, I think the, the turbulence associated with the high velocities in the galactic center is probably the, the most likely explanation. I like to think of it as material clumps of gas in orbit about the galactic center are a bit like dodgems. They're going around in a supposedly orderly way, but it's very turbulent and chaotic. So collisions between clouds of gas are probably quite common. And those collisions create turbulence and heating uh, probably in a much more vigorous way than occurs elsewhere in the galaxy. That was Professor Matt Griffin, from the University of Cardiff. He's the principal investigator on the Spire instrument that took those observations, and he also told me that even though the Herschel Space Telescope has now run out of the helium coolant that it needs to operate its infrared cameras, his team still have an absolutely vast amount of data still to be analysed, and so we can look forward to learning much more about those star-forming regions in the next few years. One surprise in recent decades has been that even some galaxies that are normally quiet, that don't appear to have any flow of material onto their central black holes, can sometimes appear to flare up. In April, researchers working with a space-based X-ray telescope called Integral spotted just such a flare at the centre of the galaxy NGC 4845. Like the Milky Way, this is a spiral galaxy whose central black hole is normally quiet, and so this flare came as quite a surprise. To find out what might have triggered it, I spoke to Dr Roland Water from the University of Geneva. He led the observations, and I started by asking him how he came to discover the flare in the first place. So I was observing, in fact, a deep extragalactic field, in particular on the Quasar 3C273, and suddenly another galaxy that we never detected before became very bright, and that was the start of that story. So it was just a case of you observing one galaxy and another one happened to be in the same field of view and then something rather exciting happened. Absolutely. So in that galaxy, we never saw anything. And suddenly we saw a source brightening. And in fact, we could see the flux of that galaxy. So the hard X-ray flux increasing from zero to the maximum in about two to three weeks. And then the flux started to decrease. We had an observation later on, and the flux, in fact, decreased over a year timescale. And what's your interpretation of what was going on to make that flare happen so very suddenly? So the flux indeed increased by a factor of at least 1,000 in our case, and perhaps even more. If you can measure the flux you get during, uh, let's say, several weeks or a few months, you can measure the integrated energy that came out of that black hole. And this energy, you can directly relate it to, to an amount of mass that is accreted by the black hole. And this amount of mass corresponds to half of the mass of the planet Jupiter. 
So we knew that the amount of gas that has been really aggregated in the black hole correspond to alpha Jupiter. But in fact, in such event, the mass of the object that is disrupted is much larger and only a fraction of that mass falls on the black hole. So we estimate, looking at the shape of the light curve, that the mass of the initial object should be something like 15 times the mass of Jupiter. So you know the mass of the object that fell in and you know it went in quite quickly. So are you inferring from that that this was quite a compact object like a whole planet that just flew in through the event horizon of this black hole and was swallowed up? What we believe is that this massive object, which is either a massive planet or a brown dwarf, so a failed star, if you want, but very low mass one, this object came close enough to the black hole to be disrupted by the tidal forces. And at that point, you have the external part of this object that will be ejected from the core of the object. And this occurs something like three months before we have seen the first hard X-rays. Because then you need, in that case, probably two to three months for the material to go from the objects to the surface of the black hole, where it starts to shine at very high energies. And then you have part of the material of the atmosphere of this object that fall into the black hole. And when this material arrived at the horizon of the black hole, then it started to shine very strongly. And it took about basically one month for all the material that was going to fall in the black hole to indeed fall in the black hole. But the rest of the material that was ejected because of the tidal forces, some of that material also went away from the system. So we never fall into the black hole, but just go around as a gas cloud. That was Dr. Roland Water, who's based at the University of Geneva. And I find his observations particularly fascinating, because as well as telling us about the mechanics of how material behaves when it falls onto a black hole, once we start to get an idea of how common these flares are, that will also give us some clue about how many planets and failed stars there are, drifting through galaxies like NGC 4845. Moving closer to home, though, in many ways our own Milky Way is very similar to the galaxy that Roland was just talking about. It's a spiral galaxy, and it's of a similar size and mass to NGC 4845. One man who's made a career out of studying the centre of our own galaxy is Professor Reinhard Genzel at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Garching near Munich. Last year, he published observations of a small gas cloud, which seems to be heading on a remarkably straight path, straight into the black hole at the Milky Way's centre, albeit much more slowly than the flare that we've just been talking about. I started by asking him how the Milky Way compares to others like NGC 4845. Well, we live, of course, in a spiral galaxy, a disk, disk-like system, which has a modest central bulge, as we say. That's a concentration of stars, which looks more like an elliptical galaxy, very typical, like many galaxies of that mass. So in that sense, our Milky Way is quite similar to galaxies of that mass class, if I like to say it this way. And the black hole, for instance, is also you know, about typical, a little less massive than some other galaxies of the similar mass have. But in many ways, our Milky Way is a typical galaxy. You've made observations of a gas cloud which is falling into the central black hole. How do you go about observing gas which is at the centre of the galaxy? Well, there's various ways. depends on what kind of gas we have. So gas, of course, can come in various forms. The gas we are observing is ionized gas, so that's where the hydrogen atoms are split up into a proton and an electron. But you can have neutral gas, uh, can have molecular gas, all kinds of gas. So the gas we are observing is ionized gas, and when you have ionized gas in a fairly dense region like the galactic center, then some of the electrons and the protons come together again, and so that leads to what we call recombination, so they form hydrogens, black neutral hydrogen, and in this process they radiate uh, lines which we can observe in principle from the radio all the way to the infrared, and what we've been observing is infrared recombination line emission from hydrogen, and there's also a helium line, but the main process is ionized gas, which gets ionized by ultraviolet radiation, but then in the recombination back to a neutral, neutral material we can see this emission. Now I know it was quite a surprise to discover this cloud because we think that there isn't gas accreting onto the central black hole 
at the centre of the Milky Way because otherwise it would be very bright and luminous and hot. Where do we think this cloud might have come from? Well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, we're incredibly excited that it exists. That's for sure it exists. And it, it happens to be on a remarkably straight orbit into the black hole. I mean, black holes are known to be accretors of materials just because their gravity is so enormous. So you might think that it's easy for black holes to be fueled by material which is around it. And in the galactic center, there's a lot of interstellar gas around we know about. And so you would think it's easy for the galactic center black hole to gobble that all up and start to radiate, as you say. But it isn't. And the reason is that in order for material to fall into a black hole, it has to get rid of its what we call angular momentum. Okay, It's like the planets around the sun where... It's not possible, in fact, for a planet to fall directly into the sun because it's moving in circles around the sun. So likewise, the gas, most of the gas in the galactic center has this angular momentum, and to fall into the black hole, you have to remove it. This particular cloud, somebody, so to speak, prepared it for us such that it falls almost straight into the black hole. That's incredible. We've never seen such a cloud before. And the excitement is really, A, we may see what happens to this cloud. Perhaps some of it will fall into the black hole, not just orbit around it. Uh, and the other excitement about it is that in many ways it's like a test particle. It will tell us a little bit more about the immediate vicinity of the black hole. We know about the black hole in terms of mass, so we know a lot about the uh, gravitation, but we suspect that around the black hole, or any black hole actually, there should be sort of a halo, if you like, a concentration of very, very hot gas, which we can see not really very well. We can see it in x-rays, but we don't have much detail on it. And this accretion zone, as we say, some, sometimes also accretion disk, is something we, we know very little about and would like to understand better. And so in a way, we are, if you think about it, this cloud gets thrown into the center, into the black hole, and on its way, it will have to interact with this hot gas, and this interaction we hope to see, and we will then deduce from it something about the properties of the hot gas. So when will this gas make its closest approach into the black hole, and what might we expect to see? Well, it's already doing that, and so as I said, it's on a, basically a straight path. Now, in contrast to, say, stars, gas in the galactic center has the properties that it cannot hold together. So you throw a star into the galactic center, which we see all the time. It orbits around the galactic center on various orbits, elliptical or circular or whatever, but it always does it, you know, without being destroyed. In the case of a gas cloud, uh, the property of a gas cloud is such that its own gravity is not strong enough to prevent it from being torn apart. So it's like the famous case of the astronaut traveling into a black hole and getting distorted into a spaghetti-like structure on the way just because there is a tidal force acting on it, on it and basically pulling it all apart. And that, that pulling apart, we see, okay, we see directly from our measurements and it behaves really like it should. I mean, it's basically gravity pulling it into various uh, pieces. So, I mean, how bright will this be? Will it be the sort of thing that you can look up and see with the naked eye? No, it's not very much material. So, actually, it's remarkable how good our current instrumentation has become. We estimate that the amount of material which is contained or associated with this cloud is about the equivalent of a few times the mass of the Earth. So that's not much material at all. However, if indeed uh, this much material would fall into the event horizon or pass into the event horizon in one go, then it could produce quite a spectacular radiation phenomenon. We don't think it happened that way, again, for the same reasons I discussed before. There's angular momentum. You have to first remove the angular momentum, and our galactic center black hole, and in fact many black holes, they seem to be not very efficient in removing the angular momentum. But that's why, in fact, most of the current epoch black holes around us in other galaxies are fairly faint. They used to be very bright in early times when they were fed with a lot of gas, but now they seem to be generally fairly faint. And so what we expect to happen 
in terms of the cloud is initially we expect the cloud perhaps this year when it's beginning to come very, very close to the you know, innermost region to heat up as it gets pressured by the hot gas. That's very much like a meteorite falling into the earth. A meteorite like the one in Russia gets very hot, gets in fact destroyed in the process and starts radiating because the, some of the material in the meteorite becomes very hot. Similar effect in this gas cloud, this interaction between the gas cloud and the hot gas surrounding the black hole. Now, some of the gas cloud then presumably will be destroyed and then may over time fall into the black hole, probably not in one go. I think, you know, it'll probably be destroyed and then it'll take some time to rain, rain down onto the black hole over perhaps years, in which case we'll have to see how much radiation it will send out. We hope to see it this year in X-rays and maybe radio waves. And then it really depends. And that's actually part of the excitement. This is sort of a controlled experiment for us. We can really learn a lot about the environment of the black hole with this little cloud. My thanks to Professor Reinhard Genzel from the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics. You're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. And now it's time to take some more of your questions. Andy Rendell sent an email to astronomy at thenakedscientist.com to say that he's heard that the Earth's magnetic field may soon flip in its direction so that the North Pole may soon become the South Pole and vice versa. He was wondering whether this is normal and whether it might also happen to other stars and planets. To find out, I asked Kirsten Goschalk. I just want to focus in on that soon first. So it is actually very normal for planets to have a magnetic pole switch. We can see in uh, the history of the Earth that it's happened many, many times since the Earth formed four and a half billion years ago or so. Uh, but like the idea that we're due for one soon, that the, the North and South Pole are going to reverse suddenly soon is incorrect, I believe. It's not a regular thing. You can go for millions of years without having a magnetic pole switch and then you can have two quite close together on a geological time scale. So the idea that we're going to have one soon, I think, is perhaps something we shouldn't be counting on. It's very unlikely to happen in our lifetime. And even if it did start in our lifetime, they think it takes thousands of years to actually happen. So even if it started today, it's unlikely we would see a North and South Pole flip around in our lifetimes. Um, so that's that addresses the soon thing. So, yeah, we definitely know that it's happened on Earth. We've seen it happen a number of times through the geological record, so we can dig down in the Earth and actually see what the magnetic field was like in the past. And we can actually also see on other planets, well, other bodies, in our solar system is happening as well. It happens every 11 years, approximately, on the Sun. So the Sun has a very strong magnetic field, and it causes the sunspots that we see and solar flares, and it's very dynamic. It's changing basically on a day-to-day basis and follows this 22-year cycle, again, approximately. So you see the magnetic poles flip once every 11 years so that they go back to what they were before every 22 years. And so this is caused by the sun. It rotates faster at the equator than at the poles, And this causes the magnetic field in the sun to twist up. And then you get all of these loops happening and they cause solar prominences and sunspots. And then as all of this dynamic process is happening inside the star with the magnetic fields, the poles will end up switching. And then, I guess, as I said, switch back again 11 years later. So we see it happening in the sun. But that's the fastest we can see it happening in the solar system. I actually did a little bit of looking in some journals for this because I wasn't too sure about the other planets in our solar system. Venus has no intrinsic magnetic field from the planet, but Mercury, Uranus, Neptune, Saturn and Jupiter all have magnetic fields. And I found a paper in Icarus, which is a journal from the American Astronomical Society on planetary geology and planetary science. And it actually explored the possibility of these magnetic field reversals, these switches of the poles in both Jupiter and Saturn. And they concluded that they do occur, and they probably occur on order of every few centuries instead of thousands, two millions of years on Earth or the you know every 11 years on the Sun. So my short answer is yes, it can happen in other planets in the solar system. It has happened on Earth, and it happens in stars as well. So I guess on the Earth it's quite easy to see evidence for that because you can dig up rocks which were formed millions of years ago and which have magnetic fields locked into them because they contain iron. 
I guess when a gas giant like Jupiter or Saturn, it's really very difficult to know historically what their magnetic fields were doing. Extremely difficult. And even on somewhere like Mercury, because we haven't been to Mercury, we haven't sent a probe to Mercury to dig through the Mercury's crust to see if we can see the history of these magnetic poles which is happening. So the fact that we haven't been to any of these places to actually do this direct observation means we are inferring details based on what we know about the planets. But we do see Jupiter's uh, magnetic field changing. So its magnetosphere is actually can be observed indirectly using radio telescopes. And it's actually a strong enough signal that you could pick it up by like an amateur radio operator on Earth could pick it up. So you can see the changing of this magnetic field over time through observing its magnetosphere and the radio waves it emits. So we know that Jupiter's magnetic field is changing and we see that. And we also know that they have quite strong magnetic fields because we actually see aurora on Jupiter and Saturn. In fact, there's some amazing Hubble Space Telescope images that I would really recommend people go and find because the aurora on Jupiter and Saturn are stunning. And that's actually one of my favourite parts of a magnetic pole reversal and why I really wish one would start happening on the Earth now because when this happens, it's not like the poles flip immediately. As I said, it takes thousands of years. And during that time, you actually get many poles around the Earth. And so you basically have auroras everywhere. And I think that would be really cool. And I think they say that the magnetic field of Jupiter is actually the largest structure in the solar system. Yes, that's what I was reading, that it's absolutely massive, Jupiter's magnetosphere. It is definitely much bigger than Jupiter, and it extends out like a tadpole shape, and yeah, it's bigger than the Sun. So it seems we could be in for quite dramatic sky shows the world over, but perhaps not just yet. Earlier on, we heard about the bright red-hot emission that results when gas accelerates to nearly the speed of light, as it falls into a black hole. But Jack Stott has got in touch, wondering just how fast is the speed of light. He wants to know how long you would have to spend accelerating at 1g, the acceleration you experience in free fall on Earth, before you'd be travelling that fast. So I have to say, I was really excited when I heard that Jack had asked this question because it meant that I got to get out my high school physics again and do some calculations, which I very rarely get to do these days. And this answer actually really surprised me. It turns out it would only take 354 days, so pretty much almost a year, to get to light speed if you're accelerating at 1G. It really surprised me, actually, that it was that quick. I thought it would take way longer to get to the speed of light. Now, I guess there are some relativistic problems here, aren't there? Because as you started to get towards the speed of light, your acceleration would start to slow down somewhat. Definitely. As you approach the speed of light, relativity comes into play and it's much, much harder to accelerate yourself. You become heavier and heavier and heavier. But the way I did this calculation was to assume that your 1G acceleration was constant from a reference frame that was external to the object. So say we're observing from the Earth this object being accelerated through space at 1G. And so if you did do it from the reference frame of the object or you, if you're the person sitting in a spaceship being accelerated, then you will get a different result. And I will also say the mass of the object is irrelevant in this calculation. So it actually ends up being a very, very simple calculation because you have a defined constant acceleration. And of course, just to put that out there and say it right now, I know that you can't accelerate anything to the speed of light. It's obviously a moot point uh, to actually speed something to the speed of light. Um, So I've just done the calculation assuming you could get to the speed of light. It would take 354 days. But of course, the amount of energy you would need to produce 1G even as you start getting to 80% of the speed of light, 90% of the speed of light, you you start using up all of the energy available in the universe, basically, to get there, no matter how heavy you are. And you become much more heavy. Your mass increases as as you speed up as well, obviously. So having been accelerating at 1G for this 354 days, how far would you have traveled by the end of that? A very, very long way. So it's about half a light year, which is about... 31,000 times the distance between the Sun and the Earth, which is called one astronomical unit, so about 30,600 AU, or astronomical units, 285 trillion miles, if you want to know it in miles, and 4 times 10 to the 12 kilometres. So a very long way just to get to the speed of light, well and truly out of the solar system. My thanks to Kirsten Goschalk. You're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford, and it's time to take a look at what's been making the headlines recently. 
In Britain, at least, a lot of the newspapers have been covering the story that the UK is soon to send its first astronaut to the International Space Station. To find out what impact this might have on space science in the UK, I spoke to Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. Tim Peake becoming the first official UK astronaut is a big change in the policy of the UK government. Britain's always taken the view in the past that we wouldn't take any kind of role in the human exploration of space. So whilst the other countries of the European Space Agency, so particularly France, Germany and Italy, were quite keen to send astronauts, the UK didn't take any part in that. So what that meant was that if you wanted to go into space, you had to do it via a different route. And in the case of people like Michael Fole and Pierce Sellers and Nicholas Patrick, they became American citizens so they could join NASA and fly that way. Helen Sharman, who was the very first Britain to fly in space, she did it by winning a competition and going through private industry. She basically had private money to go up to what was the Russian space station at the time, Mia, and, and spent a while up there. Now, is it good value? Well, I guess it's an interesting question. I mean, the rampant investment in the European Space Agency that comes with it is, I think, pretty welcome. And most people working in space science would say that was a good thing to do. It's largely about industry, but there is an awful lot of scientific work that goes on with it. And Tim Peake is really part of that deal. So he applied to join the astronaut corps a few years ago. And the then science minister, Paul Drayson, approved that. And David Willits, his successor, does the same. So I think the spin-offs from it, well, you're looking at having someone up there who can obviously take part in the industrial and scientific work that goes on on the space station. You can also argue that having a Briton up there, perhaps someone who well, has a lot of expectations on him, that's for sure, but someone who's up there communicating with the wider world might help young people take an interest in this kind of thing and more broadly in science and technology as a whole. So those are the kind of calculations that are being made. I mean, investment in space per se, I think, is generally a good deal because you, you build a high-tech industry alongside it and it is good for science because of the kind of ways we can explore the universe from space, if nothing else. If you can send uh, telescopes into orbit, then having talented space scientists building these things on the ground uh, gets you there. I guess non-American astronauts going to the ISS has been in the news quite a lot the last few weeks because we've also heard about Chris Hadfield, who's had a phenomenal number of followers on Twitter. I think that Chris Hadfield is the example that everybody is comparing Tim Peake with. I mean, and Chris Hadfield was doing a phenomenal job of communicating with people here. I mean, you just look at his YouTube videos, his tweets and so on, and I particularly liked it when he just responded to someone's question and squeezed out a hand towel in space to see what would happen. And it's completely intriguing to see this column of water held together by surface tension around it, fantastic stuff. And, you know, playing the guitar and singing Bowie tracks and so on was, I I guess you could say the guy's pretty cool, really, and quite uh, at ease with himself. Uh, Tim Peake doesn't quite promise to do that because he says he's not really musical enough, although he can play the guitar. But he was uh, speculating that a friend of his had uh, offered to teach him the didgeridoo, and so you might get the first didgeridoo player in orbit. Who knows exactly what that will sound like? I guess we'll wait and see. Now, obviously, this is excellent for outreach. The cost people have been talking about is, is what, about £80 million? In recent years, robotic rovers like the Curiosity rover on Mars have been doing really first-rate work. Do you think humans can really compete with what rovers can do in terms of scientific research? Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, a Mars mission, for example, is, is hugely expensive and difficult to accomplish and all of those things. And I don't, for that reason, actually really think that we'll see anything on a big scale or any kind of human presence in getting close to the red planet for at least 20, 25 years. And the sad thing is it's actually been 25 years for as long as I can remember people talking about it. You know, in the 1980s, they were talking about the early 2000s and so on. That said, if you could get people there, if you could find a way to do it quickly and safely and conveniently enough and and cheaply enough, people do have a certain flexibility and innate creativity that is very, very difficult to design into robotic systems. Uh, If you took a crew of astronauts who were trained properly and presumably had training geology and biology and so on and sent them exploring the surface of Mars, my guess is they'd do an awful lot in a matter of weeks and be better at doing that than rovers are in, in years and years. But, of course, rovers are, and it's entirely reasonable, so it's probably going you know, to cost you about 1% of the cost of sending people there. So I think it's a decision to make. I mean, I suspect that it's worth factoring in that this is about exploration and high frontier and all of those things as much as it is about science. And as long as that's recognized and we don't strip the science budget bare to pay for something like that, then it's a reasonable enough thing to do. That was Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society and we'll be returning to him in a moment to find out what other news he spotted this month. 
First, though, a team led by Dr James Miller-Jones from Curtin University in Perth has solved a decades-old puzzle of a binary star system, SS Cygni, which seemed to be much brighter than it ought to be. Their study, which was published in the journal Science this month, found that the brightness of SS Cygni can actually be accounted for rather simply because it turns out to be much closer than we previously thought. To make that discovery, they made use of the fact that it changes its position in the night sky ever so slightly over the course of the year due to the Earth's changing position in space as it circles around the Sun. The team behind that paper work very closely with Kirsten at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, and so I asked her to tell me more. So Dr Miller-Jones and his team measured the distance to this binary star system called SS Cygni, and they used some radio telescopes in Europe and the United States to work out the precise location of this system with respect to background radio galaxies, so they could then use a thing called parallax to work out how far away it is. So parallax is really simple to demonstrate. If you put your arm out at arm's length and hold your finger up and then close one eye and then close the other and alternate which eye is closed, you'll see your finger moving against the background. And if you bring your finger closer to your face, it'll move even more against the background compared to when it's far away. So we can actually work out how distant things are by looking at how much they move against a background source that doesn't move. So Dr Miller-Jones and the team, they did this with this system and worked out that it was 372 light years away. To put that in context, it means that the light that they observed actually left SS Cygni when Sir Isaac Newton was born in the 1600s. So it's been a long time travelling towards us and they finally were able to measure it with the radio telescopes and work out how far away it is. And this is interesting because this object had previously had its distance measured by the Hubble Space Telescope in the 90s and they'd measured it to be very far away. So far away, in fact, that the models we had for how these systems work couldn't account for how bright it was. So we're like, oh, maybe it's a really weird system, maybe we don't understand it, or maybe our physics is wrong. But now we've managed to make this new distance measurement and it's come in closer. So it means that all the models are right and everything's okay. And this measurement was only made possible by some amazing amateur astronomers from the American Association of Variable Star Observers. And they observed SS Cygni night after night and noticed when it was about to start emitting radio waves, because systems like these don't usually emit radio waves strong enough for us to be able to detect from Earth. So these amateur astronomers looked at the system night after night after night and then alerted Dr Miller-Jones and the team to when it was about to be emitting these radio waves so they could quickly get the radio telescopes lined up to look at it and get the observations that they needed to make the distance measurement. So Dr Miller-Jones and the team, they say that the um, amateur astronomers' help was invaluable and they wouldn't be able to have solved this puzzle without their help. A relief for theorists there that SS Cygni doesn't violate any laws of physics by being brighter than it ought to be, but is instead just much closer than we previously thought. My thanks to Kirsten Goschalk from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. Now, to find out what else has been going on this month, I asked Robert Massey what other stories had caught his eye. Well, one of the stories that caught my eye was a NASA video of a meteorite impact on the Moon. Now, these must be fairly common. The reason I say that is that, obviously, unlike the Earth, the Moon has no atmosphere, so any debris that's flying around our solar system at some speed crashes straight into it. On Earth, the situation is that the overwhelming majority of stuff that comes towards us burns up in our atmosphere. But on the Moon, even something fairly small if it hits the moon directly it's not slowed down by any kind of atmosphere that we'd have here it can make quite a big crater and be quite an event and the video seems to show something which was about uh, 30 40 centimeters across maybe about 40 kilograms in mass smashing into the moon probably at about 10 kilometers a second and creating quite a powerful explosion as it was destroyed as it vaporized on impact that was bright enough to be detected by telescopes on earth and if you'd been looking at the moon at that moment and you were very keen-sighted, you might even have seen it with your eye, although, to be fair, I hadn't actually heard any reports of people doing that. So I guess that's interesting in that it helps us to understand what size of crater and explosion is created by what size of object when they hit the moon. It does, and it also, not only does it tell us about the kind of dynamics and the effect that an object hitting the moon has, it also tells us something about how many things are out there, because the moon, in a sense, well, it's, it's a natural laboratory for 
that sort of thing. It collects a lot of material from the rest of the solar system simply because that material isn't destroyed in the same way as it is on Earth. So you don't just get moderate-sized pieces hitting the Earth's atmosphere completely destroyed. Apart from seeing a streak of light in the form of the meteor, we don't get to handle them most of the time unless they're big enough to make it all the way down to the ground as a meteorite. But it is uh, something that seems to be quite routine. The project that saw this one has detected something like 300 of these events since 2005. It's just that this one was the brightest and therefore connected with the biggest object they've seen so far. I mean, we don't know, for example, what it was made of. At least I haven't seen any reports of analysis of that. But there is a proposal now to get the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been matching, uh, mapping the moon for the last couple of years, to actually fly over this region and see if it can see an impact crater that was left behind. And do we know what rough size of crater we'd be looking at for a 30-centimetre object? I mean, it, it surprised me, but they seem to be suggesting something which was a few tens of metres across. If I sound surprised, that's because one of the rules is that normally you multiply by about 10 to go from object to, to crater, but it may be something about the angle it came in at and the speed it was travelling at. But a 50-metre crater was one suggestion. If it's that big, that would certainly be something that would be fairly easy to spot from an orbiting spacecraft. And I guess... The other interest will be that it will be quite fresh, so it might have uncovered some material that's fairly deep down and there won't be any processes, and they're very slow on the moon anyway, because there's no atmosphere and therefore no wind and water and so on, at least not anything like the quantities you have on Earth. And that means that features tend to last a very, very long time until actually something else smashes into the same spot on top of it. So it may be that we get a look at quite a fresh area on the surface, so it would be very interesting to see what they come back with. So interesting to see a change on a body that we normally think of as being rather static. Now, in recent years, the sun has been rather quiet, but I gather it's been flaring up quite a lot the last few months. What's this about? Well, we're approaching what's called sunspot maximum, and sunspot maximum is the time when the activity of the sun reaches a peak. Now, it tends to go in roughly 11-year cycles, which means that you have a peak in activity which slumps down over a decade or so and then ramps up again. And we think we're approaching one of those periods now or even in one of those periods. The key number people look at is the number of sunspots on the surface, and that's risen a lot from its minimum a few years ago. And connected with that, what you also see then is more activity in the form of solar flares, big explosions on the surface of the sun, and material being thrown into space. Now, the interesting thing about this one is that it doesn't yet seem to be anything like as active as its counterpart a decade ago, and there's lots of speculation about why that may be the case. I suspect, actually, that the answers aren't entirely clear just yet, and the, the models certainly need a lot of work. But in the last few days, or a few days ago, there were, there were a series of solar flares, explosions from a particularly active region, and actually we had four of these called X-class flares, the, the most powerful type, in the space of just 48 hours. So that was, was not unprecedented, it was the most powerful series of events this year, and it does suggest perhaps we're now at the stage when the sun is reaching that peak of activity again. Now I guess for us on Earth, what solar activity does is it triggers the northern and southern lights. Have there been aurorae associated with the solar flares? I haven't checked all the reports of this yet. I haven't seen anything, any reports of displays of northern lights at low latitudes, which is what you sometimes get. So, in other words, if you see something over Scotland or northern England, for example, that kind of event can happen. And that's partly, I think, because these events were mostly not actually directed towards the Earth, so the material would have gone out in a different direction. It may well have gone past uh, a couple of spacecraft, one of which uh, Stereo B um, seems to have picked something up. That's one of two probes that have been studying the sun for quite a long time now. But it, I haven't heard of any suggestions it had an effect here. Now, if in a few days' time these sunspots, the, the active region on the sun, is facing the Earth, then the material comes out of that region again and comes straight towards us, then you might see the kind of things you're describing. You might get bright aurora displays. But as with all these things, unfortunately, we don't get a great deal of warning of certainly when the flare's going to happen. We really don't know. And the associated ejection material, well, you can see it coming and perhaps get a couple of days. So my advice is if you live in a part of the world like, say, northern Scotland, where you're used to seeing this kind of thing and it's actually dark enough because, of course, approaching the summer months, it doesn't quite get dark there. Keep an eye on the web and, and have a look, and it may just be that you get, you're lucky enough to see a display. And obviously for spacecraft like Stereo B, as you just mentioned, solar activity can actually be quite dangerous, can't it? 
Yeah, I mean, Stereo B is, is something designed to study the sun. And, you know, a lot of them can be put into safe mode, I guess, like you can with your computer, where you can restart it again when the danger's passed. But certainly, if you're talking about more delicate satellites near the Earth's surface or they're in low Earth orbit, the, the kind of things that we depend on for communications, for remote sensing, for weather and so on, and GPS, for example, then if they're hit by a solar flare, they can be knocked out. And it's estimated that if we have a very powerful event, or if we had a very powerful event uh, in the future, that you know perhaps we could even lose as many as a tenth to a fifth of those satellites. It would be a very serious problem. But you know that said, there's nothing you can. You certainly can't stop the sun doing this. So it's, you just have to mitigate it and find ways to protect them as best you can. Now, a story of asteroids crashing into white dwarfs. What on earth is this about? <laughs> well, you know, as you'll be aware, there's an ongoing quest to find planets a bit like the Earth around other stars. And we've sort of had some success of that with spacecraft like Kepler before it unfortunately finished its mission last week. But the other way of doing it is to do detective work, to look for evidence that there were once planets like this in orbit around other stars. And there's a researcher, uh, Jay Farihi, who's at the University of Cambridge, who's done a lot of work in this area. He looks at what are called white dwarfs, and white dwarfs are the end state of stars like the sun. The sun will become one of these when it uses up all its fuel, when it's run out of hydrogen to turn into helium, or it's not available in the right place anyway, sheds its outer layers into space. And what's left is a very, very hot, dense core of material called a white dwarf. I mean, only about as big as the Earth, but, but extremely hot. And it just cools down over time. And he looked at these objects in the Hyades cluster, which is one of the nearest clusters of stars to the Earth, about 150 light years away. And, and it's genuinely where there are a lot of stars close together. And if you want to see this yourself in the autumn and winter, it's in the constellation of Taurus. It's a sort of V around the star, or Deborah. And if you look on any star map, it's very easy to find, even with just your eye. And the stars he, he was looking at were examples of things that were slightly more massive than the sun when they were burning fuel, and now they've formed these white dwarfs. And they seem to have evidence for, in their chemistry and the surrounding material, of rocky stuff there. So, in other words, the kind of things that go on to build asteroids, or if you wait around long enough, to build planets like the Earth. And he measured the ratio as well of the elements silicon and oxygen, and he thinks that that's very much like the Earth. So, in other words, it suggests that what you're looking at is stars with a lot of rocky material around them. And he then goes on to say, actually, that perhaps even as many as a third of white dwarfs show evidence for this in the work that he's done. So it looks as though, in stars like the Sun, that rocky planets may be quite common. It's just that we haven't found most of them yet. I guess it's perhaps more surprising, given the history of these stars, that they're formed into white dwarfs, that this rocky material is still there. That's an, a good question. You know, at some point this stuff, however, has ended up falling down towards the star. Now, if you have the lifetime in the universe to wait, so you get gravitational waves emanating, your orbits decay. That takes a very, very, very long time. So I don't think it's that process. But whatever the process is, some of this stuff ended up much nearer these stars and in some cases arrived on their surface and, and polluted or contaminated their surfaces. And some of it ended up there, I guess, through collisions. But either way, it's apparently in orbit around this stuff. So, you know, it looks as though at the end of these stars' lives, there was enough rocky material left behind that we can see evidence that there were perhaps once planets in orbit around those stars. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. We've got time for one last question this month, and Dave Norton has got in touch to ask how spacecraft can navigate their way through the solar system, given that GPS sat-nav systems don't work in space, and he was wondering whether it might be similar to the way that sailors used to navigate at sea using the stars. Now, in fact, Dave, you're very close to the truth because spacecraft, in fact, do navigate using the stars of the night sky. So the process starts with space scientists on Earth who will know where they want to navigate their spacecraft to. And they have supercomputers at places like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, which can simulate how spacecraft travel under Newton's laws of gravity and motion. And they can also simulate what effect the thrusts that they might perform will have on its trajectory through the solar system. Now, once those space scientists have decided what rocket thrust they want to do, the spacecraft has obviously got to orientate itself in exactly the right direction to thrust itself in the right way. Most spacecraft have on board a telescope which is dedicated to looking at the stars of the night sky around the spacecraft and working out what direction it's facing in. And 
it will use that telescope to pick out the constellations of the night sky and then it will use low power thrusts on its rockets to swing itself round to face in exactly the right direction it needs to to thrust in the direction it wants to. Now these days these systems are pretty reliable. The Hubble Space Telescope, for example, navigates the night sky to find the object it wants to observe by exactly this method using an onboard telescope which can pick out where the constellations are around it. However, in the past, these systems have had some problems. And one of the reasons why some of the early space missions failed was because these telescopes were failing to lock on to the right constellations. And and sometimes spacecraft actually performed manoeuvres in completely the wrong direction because they got two of the constellations of the night sky muddled up. So thanks, Dave, for that excellent question. And of course, if you have a question you would like us to answer, you can get in touch by sending an email to astronomy at thenakedscientist.com. That's all we've got time for this month. But as always, you can find more on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Dominic Ford, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council.